Here's a guarantee. Listen to this podcast. You'll be entertained and inspired. Hello, I'm Jordan with On Mike with Jordan Rich. And today, a wonderful gentleman is stopping by. The fact that he found time in his busy schedule to do so certainly means a lot to me. His name is Brett Miller. And when I tell you he's a force of nature, believe me. He's the founder of 110fitness.org, a facility here in the greater Boston area, the first of its kind inclusive wellness center for folks afflicted with disease and or developmental or physical disabilities. The mission there is to leave no person behind so that they reach their full potential physically, mentally, and spiritually. It's an amazing program. We'll talk about that. But Brett is also the author of a book called It's a Beautiful Day to Save Lives, A Medic's Journey to His Destiny. It's a book about Brett's experiences as a youngster in the military and today, saving lives, including his own. So let's get right to it, shall we? Let's go on mic with Brett Miller. I am as pumped as anybody to meet a guy who's as pumped as anybody. Welcome, Brett, to the podcast. (laughs) Thank you very much. Honored to be here, for sure. Indeed. It's a beautiful day to save lives. I always ask authors about titles, and titles mean a lot. In your case, it means everything, because you've had a lot of those beautiful days. I sure have. I I guess I should say I've been blessed uh, with being able to have the opportunity to help people and to save lives, and it really is uh, the, you know, contents of my book. The, the word destiny, Brett, is in the subtitle. Yes. You're destined to do this, and destiny is a funny thing. No one wakes up and like third grade and says, I'm destined to be the president, but they might end up being the president. In your case, let's take us back to the early days growing up in southern New England here in southern eastern Massachusetts. Sure. I spent most of my young childhood in a small town on the South Shore called Norwell. Mm -hmm. And back then it was a real country town. There wasn't a lot of homes. There was a lot of land. And it was just a really great place to be alive and to be a young child roaming through the town of Norwell. It was very a lot of locals and most everybody knew each other, small businesses and just a real quaint, small town, nice feeling. And when you say roaming around, uh, you're not anywhere near as ancient as I am, but you remember days when you actually went out and played. Yes, we spent all day. I spent a lot of my childhood in a rundown marina called King's Landing. And we went out and, and we came home when it was dark. And we were in the woods and out by the you know the river and just running around, just being kids. Yeah, the idea of organized play and play dates is, is anathema to me. I can't get that between my head. But anyway, so the story, and I want to focus on the book at first, the story really revolves around incidents that occurred Talk about the early ones, because they're just as fascinating as the current ones in terms of saving lives. Sure. When I was very young, uh, and I was involved in an incident where my brother, we had moved within the town of Norwell, and we grew up on cranberry bogs. We had cranberry bogs, and I was just about seven years old at the time. And we had a lot of ice that we used to skate on and, and play on. And one of those incidences was where my brother fell through the ice and was trapped underneath the ice. I was unable to get through the hole without obviously going in the drink myself and trying to get him up uh, out of the hole. And he kept popping up underneath the ice, Mm. but I couldn't get to him. You ultimately did. I ultimately did. And uh, we were were very lucky both to be alive that day. I'm sure you're familiar with the 
greatest movie in my mess estimation. It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, George Bailey saves Harry Bailey's life <laughs> yes. as a kid in the ice pond. In the ice pond. It's very reminiscent of that when I read the book. Now, the book actually starts out with you in the army, I believe, right? Um, saving someone, which is kind of the the gig at the time. The first story, the chapter opens up. I'm actually on a plane flying out to L.A. for a research project that I'm working on for a company out mm. in Los Angeles. That's right. That's right. And I have been out of the service since then. Okay. But, uh, Tell that story because it sticks with me. Sure. I was – you know, flying out of Logan Airport, right here out of Boston, and heading to L.A. to help uh, support a friend who's doing research for Parkinson's disease. And shortly after being on the flight for about an hour, there was a call that came over um, and asked if anybody in the plane had any medical um, experience that they were needed promptly at the front of the plane. And I immediately got up because that's my nature. That's what I do. That's what you do. But you're also a trained medic. So you had that experience. And what was the situation? We had a young man in his mid-30s who was experiencing 8 out of 10 chest pain and the symptoms of having a a cardiac um, event, whether Mm -hmm. that was a heart attack. We weren't really sure at the time. But uh, he was, you know, up in the front in the flight attendant's seat holding his chest and hunched over short of breath, very diaphoretic, sweating, and clearly uh, in a state of panic. But you were able to help him, and without going into too much detail, how did you help him? Well, I put all my, uh, you know, I went into my hard drive, you know, of being a combat medic and, you know, did full assessments and, you know, went through all the triaging that we had learned as combat medics and did everything that I needed to do. And luckily, I had no idea that planes were so well equipped with medications and IVs and, you know, ways of administering uh, care, whether it's blood pressure cuffs or uh, O2 saturation monitors. Mm. You know, it was just fantastic. We had the equipment and we were able to keep him stable until we needed to ground the plane. So in our short discussion, we've jumped from you as a young kid saving your brother to being on a plane in the not too distant past saving a stranger. But it's remarkable how many, quote unquote, saves there are and uh, opportunities to save their, these folks over the course of your lifetime, your short lifetime. And, and how do you reconcile that? Why? Why does this happen to you? I'm glad it does because you're saving people, but why do you yes. think it is? I'm not really sure. I believe that this may be a calling for me and that, again, uh, whether these people were blessed to have somebody who could help them at the time or whether I was blessed to be able to have the opportunity to help them, I'm not sure how that all works, but – and you'll read this in my book without giving away too much detail. It does start to pile up in my life. We'll get to that. But, you know, uh, the uh, the idea that you are a willing participant in giving of yourself, um, a lot of that has to come from parents and family and upbringing. Can you describe the kind of value system that you grew up with? Sure. My mom was a single mom for a lot of our young childhood till I was about seven years old, and my mom worked. She had an incredible uh, work ethic, um, but she was a nurse. She was started out as a certified nursing assistant. She worked in a nursing home uh, helping older folks uh, care for themselves, and she used to do things on the side, private duty in people's homes, anything to make ends meet. Back then, we were very poor, and so she wanted to provide for my brother and I, and so she worked a lot while my grandfather mm-hmm. watched us. And then she went on as a career as a nurse and became a social worker, but spent most of her life, you know, giving of herself and caring for other people. 
my dad, who she met later in life, uh, my stepdad, um, ironically was a shoe salesman, but uh, he knew everybody and his he was an extremely generous people outside of his work. Yeah. To yeah. Uh, to helping people in recovery and all kinds of different things. Yeah, you you write about them with admiration as you should, and it's mm. it's saving a life is the highest calling. I mean, that's something that very few people on the street ever get a chance to do or want to be in that situation. But but just stepping up and helping people in general is a is a good trait. So uh, that carries along throughout your career and throughout the work you're doing now. Let's talk about the Army, though. Let's talk about uh, where you were stationed, where you were sent, and mm-hmm. what you encountered. Sure. Uh, four days after I graduated Norrell High School, I decided to venture off to boot camp. I had signed a contract previous uh, with the United States Army. What, what year was this? This was in 1990. Okay. I come from a very well-respected military family, and my dad was uh, in Iwo Jima raising the flag. He was in the 1st Marine Division, Guadalcanal. My grandfather was on the PT boats with John F. Kennedy, and my my brother was in the infamous 10th Mountain Division and spent 18 years with the 10th Mountain. So I had a family that was well-decorated and very highly respected in the the military world, and I followed suit. I uh, decided to... Uh, enlist in the Army, like I said, as a combat medic. And from there, I went to boot camp at Fort Dix, New Jersey, and spent a lot of time down there uh, learning. Legendary to, place. Yes, yes, legendary, becoming a soldier and, you know, eating a lot of sand and <laughs> those kinds of things. But uh, it's medic seems to make the perfect sense for a guy like you uh, with your background, with your life experience, right? Was that yes. your first choice at joining the Army, medic? Yes, it was my first choice. I uh, was in... Looking at colleges to do something in the healthcare uh, realm, I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do, but I, mm-hmm. I knew that I wanted to be a combat medic, and I knew that I wanted to work in um, special operations. So from boot camp, I went to combat medic school down in Fort Sam, uh, Houston, Texas, in San Antonio. And then um, after some, had to go to multiple specialty schools from there, I was teamed up with a, a group of six gentlemen um, there were six total of us. And ultimately, that. where were you dispatched? So I was personally dispatched in multiple places um, with my team on several missions. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the missions that I was sent on by myself were during the Bosnian conflict after the massacre of Srebrenica. I'm sure everybody oh, yeah. remembers this. A yeah. lot of people don't talk about this, but it was one of the worst massacres ever in the history of the world where there were 8,000 people killed in two days. They were displaced from their families. It was an ethnic cleansing type theme, and uh, there was a lot going on there with people being moved and transitioned in all different countries after that because there were so many people that were either missing their parents or their children or... Yeah. I have a couple of questions about sure. the, the medic corps for you first before we talk about how it affected you. Uh, one of the questions is more of an observation. Mm. Uh, in field medicine and surgery and, and helping those who are wounded has become one of the most incredible uh, methods of, of healing in the world, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we've got medics and stations that are that are mobile that can save the lives that would normally be lost. It's an incredible amount of science and art and education that mm-hmm. goes into the medical corps, isn't it? Yes, we can drop a live hospital with surgical centers, dental centers, x-ray, triage, anywhere in the world within 
probably 24 hours, and it takes two days to set up and two days to break down. And it's some of the most talented and dedicated people, yourself included. So that was the first question. The second is more philosophical. Kind of odd, isn't it, to be in the medical corps to try to save people when everyone is involved in trying to kill each other? Yes. <laughs> it's a weird way to make a living. <laughs> Serving it, your country. It is sort of an oxymoron. When, but it's when, it's it's critical, but it is, it is oxymoronic. It is critical and, and very oxymoronic, but the mission will always be the mission. And for the United States, typically that mission is one of helping, you know, and one of working with NATO groups. And these missions are to free people or to help people who are being, you know, suppressed or oppressed in, in different ways. Uh, and this continues throughout history. Look at Afghanistan. And the things that have happened there, you know, the job in the United States was to train and, you know, leave that area with a peaceful, you know, group of people policing that area so that others yeah. may live. And the politicians aside, uh, it was a noble effort on the part of our country and our troops uh, from beginning to end. Absolutely. Um, let's talk a little bit about how this affected you because you're a human being and everyone suggests, well, doctors and nurses and medics, they must be totally able to handle whatever you throw at them because they're doctors and nurses and medics, but you're a human being. What yes. impact did some of this stuff that you saw, this horrible stuff that you saw have? Well, when I was in Bosnia, I spent a lot of time uh, actually in Skopje, Macedonia. That's where I was sent with what was called the European Command, which is where they take groups of special operations soldiers and they put them all together from different countries to help create a mainstream or a flow of how to make all of this happen so that people get where they need to get. And uh, I spent a short period of time in uh, Skopje, Macedonia, in a hospital that uh, was much less than what you would think of a hospital in Boston. They use stainless steel bowls and operating rooms that are not disinfected. And, mm. you know, these hospitals, even two to three years after the Bosnia conflicts, were still full with people looking for places to live, needing all kinds of medical care, whether it's prosthetics or wound issues, because there were so many landmines that were left over after the fact and, you know, homeless groups of children running around in these dirt roads and just something you really wouldn't imagine. But I, I spent a lot of nights staring at the ceiling trying to process all of this. And, um, you know, th these things, like I said, they, they start to build up and they start to weigh heavily on you. And mm -hmm. Do you know, I have a couple situations that you'll read about in my book where you know, there were some, some real hot spots for me when I was in mm -hmm. Albania and doing some things with NATO, which were considered humanitarian missions and under the Geneva Con Convention. But, you know, clearly those rules don't apply to all, um, especially with the unsettling and unrest that was going on in Albania at the time. It was just before they tried to overthrow the government. There were riots mm -hmm. and a coup. And so. Yeah, the, the, the element of PTSD, which is a... a, a rampant through the military is totally understandable mm -hmm. uh, to go through that kind of trauma on a daily basis and to, like say, lie awake at night. And that's what you see when you're looking at the ceiling. Yeah. And, and it's very poignant the way you write about your own experiences, having saved so many and worked so hard for others, but neglecting yourself. And that happens all the time. You know, mm -hmm. put the oxygen mask on you, then put it on your child. We often forget that. Right. And 
It does. And, you know, hats off to the military, you know, after being in this war for so long. Currently, you know, we have developed different ways to create liaisons for people to go back to their civilian life, where in 1998, when I was discharged from the military, which was my choice, um, not realizing all the guilt that would come with that, you know, we didn't have those things. It was like, okay, you're all set. And you went and lived Mm -hmm. your life. You know, you signed your papers and carried on. And um, that you know, a couple of years later, that crept up to me and really sent me for a loop. In my book, I talk about being uh, an animal in a cage, walking back and forth and pacing, yeah. thinking that it was supposed to be better than this. And at the same time, I should be grateful for what I have. And, yeah, dark night of the soul. And, and almost everyone has to a certain extent, but yours is pretty dramatic. But let's talk about where you are now, which is in a very good place. And it's interesting how you and I got to know each other. They're a mutual friend, a friend of mine, a listener of mine, and a client of yours. Mm-hmm. You want to talk a little bit about Steve for a second? Sure. So, you know, uh, currently I'm, you know, the owner of uh, well, the largest wellness center in the world for people with Parkinson's disease. We're an all-inclusive wellness center, so we do programming for people with any ability or disability. But our main focus is really Parkinson's disease. And, you know, five years ago, I started a very small program where I had people come and uh practice the art of boxing without contact. And Steve was one of my first people who worked in, walked in the door. Uh, ironically, I had met him through a, a brace-fitting consult that I had done for him for a problem with his hand and was telling him about this program. And he said, well, I have Parkinson's disease, and I'm looking for a program like this. And it was just right around the corner from his home. And Steve and I have since become really great friends. He's been with me ever since. We should mention it's called 110 Fitness, correct? That's correct. All right, 110 Fitness, the number 110fitness.org, located in a town called Rockland, Massachusetts, which was a rival of my hometown in terms of football, Randolph Rockland. Remember that? Mm -hmm, Sure. But uh, I'm fascinated by, first of all, the concept and then the success you've had with this. Where does this idea come about with you? you? You said you'd wanted to do something for people with Parkinson's. Was there a personal connection to Parkinson's, uh, Steve aside? Yes. Prior to starting 110 Fitness, I was working with people with Parkinson's disease, and I was also working in professional boxing. So I was training professional fighters, uh, world champions, and using my boxing techniques for people with Parkinson's without knowing there was any research behind that. And then finding out about the research, it was almost like a perfect world for me. Yeah. Can you explain in, in layman's terms mm-hmm. what is going on here? The idea of throwing a punch. I know we're not punching anyone, but we're throwing a punch, weaving, bobbing. Is that what's helping people with Parkinson's? Explain a bit about how it might work. Sure. So there's a lot of research now out about a lot of different exercise, but the real valid research that we have is in the, in the skill and art of boxing. And the reason why is the United States Olympic Committee looked at the hardest sport that the Olympics offers, and they looked at several categories. They looked at mental aptitude, speed, range of motion, strength, power, agility, and they <clears throat> scored all of the sports that are in the Olympics, and boxing is the hardest sport in the world. And I like to let people know that if you've ever boxed or boxed without contact, it's like a 1,000-mile-an-hour chess game. So that you're thinking about your next five moves, you're letting go of the last five moves, and every move has to be planned and executed with perfection. 
So what that does is it stimulates all of the neurotransmitters or mm-hmm. chemicals in your brain, and it starts to fire all those things so that if you have a movement disorder like Parkinson's disease, your brain then says, listen, I know you want to do this. How can I help you do it? And so it makes a new path. We call it neuroplasticity, or the brain bends. It's plastic so that it sculpts itself so that you can then perform what you want to do. Yeah. And so the research really drives home that the skill and art of boxing, because it is so difficult, is so good for people with movement disorders. And and you're seeing results. You've been in business now for several years. Great results that people rave about. And uh, other parts of the country starting to take notice? Yes. There's uh, people all over the world, believe it or not, that are using the art of boxing uh, as a form of wellness for Parkinson's disease. Not as extensive, obviously, as 110 Fitness. We kind of believe that we are the model for the universe, and we try to put all of those things out there through social media, through research on site to help develop programs that are out in the world. We have an app that we use as well that people can access. And it's becoming the wave for, for Parkinson's wellness is, is boxing and then other, uh, you know, exercise. One, one note on boxing and pugilism and all that. And that is, uh, I've never boxed even amateur, but I remember in high school, we, we had, to go a couple of rounds just sparring. And even in high school, a couple of rounds moving for two minutes, it's it's amazing how much work that is. If you're not in shape, forget about it. Yes. So I have much more respect for the boxers who train and train and train because stamina, right? Mm-hmm. Stamina and what we call high-intensity interval training. And so it's that theme of the high-intensity that really stimulates the brain to want to be better. Are there other applications, and if so, what other issues, uh, neurological issues or physical issues, can this help people? Well, with with Parkinson's disease, we have the research. We're starting to now use boxing for other movement disorders, Mm -hmm. whether it might be uh, multiple sclerosis or a Huntington's chorea or an ALS or maybe some other uh, form of brain injury, whether it's traumatic brain injury, multiple concussions that we see and hear about all the time. So we're using all of those things to stimulate what I referred to as neuroplasticity to make the brain either heal or find ways to recreate movement in a very effective manner. You're a very successful trainer and uh, as somebody who's done a lot of yoga in my time and a little bit of you know classwork and other areas you, you get nowhere unless you have a good leader um, how tell me a little bit about your style for those who have not seen you I've not seen you in action mm-hmm. well I run my uh, my style is uh, of no surprise it's very uh, military yeah uh, we are super structured um, I hold everybody in our facility to the highest standards of any professional fighter. They know punch combinations. They know punch counts. They know how to move properly. They know their footwork, everything. There's no other place like us, and, and that's why we are who we are, because we require such high standards of all our folks, no matter what their ability or disability is. The other thing is, is I lead with people who I surround myself with, which are magnificent, amazing, giving volunteers that we have at 110 Fitness. All of them give their time and they show up. And, you know, I surround myself with strong, powerful, empathetic, compassionate people. And they just, they make me better, right? It'd be easy for a guy like you to, whether you're doing a podcast with a guy like me or just in general, just walk around Hey, I just dropped my Congressional Medal of Honor. Have you seen it? You know, being one of these wise-ass 
<laughs> hot shots because you have every reason to gloat for all the great you've done. But you have a humility, and I, I think that's part of the military thing from the family you told me about. Mm-hmm. But there's that humility there that I think makes you, and I'm not, I'm not just guessing this. I'm, I'm sort of knowing it intrinsically. That makes you uh, the kind of leader people want to follow. It's my opinion. And yeah. I'm sticking to it. Thank you. No, and I, <laughs> and I appreciate it. I, uh, I try to remain extremely humble, and I try to remain extremely teachable, and I have found that all of the people at 110 Fitness still and every day make me better at who I am, not only as a person, but also as a, as a leader and as a fitness trainer, mm. and also as an example to the world of you know, what we should be creating for people with Parkinson's. And do you credit, Brett, this creation and this development of your industry that really is groundbreaking? Do you credit that with helping you come back, helping you build your life again? It's everything. Mm. It's when I when I was at my lowest point in my life, you know, uh, suicidal and uh, addicted to alcohol and not being a good person, selfish, self-centered. The turning point for me, which you can read about in my book, mm. led me to dedicating the rest of my life uh, to other people. I believe that I was saved by grace. And I believe that now I need to offer that grace that was given to me to everyone else. Well, you're fulfilling a destiny. And the good news is it's not a destiny, thankfully, at the moment that involves violence. It's it, it, Although it involves a sport, that's all about beating the crap out of somebody, quote unquote. But I think it's fabulous. I think that's a – and we mentioned Steve, this mutual friend. He is just over the moon about this. He can't stop talking about it. And it gives these, these great people um, – a, a reason to be and a, and a reason to get up in the morning and to realize somebody's looking at them and saying, you can do this. It's yes. a great feeling. And Steve, you know, speaking directly to Steve, has had Parkinson's for well over 25 years and through high-intensity interval training has been able to maintain his level of function. Is Michael J. Fox at all in your radar? Have you approached his foundation? He is. I actually uh, do research for the Michael J. Fox Foundation, and I am an ambassador for the Michael J. Fox Foundation. I am not um, surprised. I have met Michael many times. I've had dinner with Michael, mm. and he is a an amazing, amazing person. Yeah. Really yeah. just ground roots, has a mission, yeah. and wants to close his doors. He wants to find a cure. He He's... If anyone can do it, it's Michael J. Fox. With people like you as ambassadors, that's great. So the book uh, is called It's a Beautiful Day to Save Lives. We talked about the title. I want to add one thing about the title. You could have said Saving Lives, A Medic's Journey to His Destiny. But you wrote A Beautiful Day. There's such a warm sense of gratitude knowing that every day people are doing what you're doing. uh, And it's nice to know about that. In other words... We don't hear about the good, the people helping people enough. That's my opinion. What do you think? I agree. And the title, It's a Beautiful Day, means no matter what. It could be any situation, anywhere in the world, wherever you are. It's a beautiful day to either reach out to somebody, help somebody, do something kind so that we can kind of tip this world a little bit more towards the kindness side. And if that involves saving someone's life, then 
Get after it. There's an old, I don't want to call it a superstition, but if you see a nun getting on a plane, it's a good thing, right? <laughs> if, if, you, if you're flying and this guy's sitting on your left or right or in coach or in first class, you're going to be okay. <laughs> Absolutely. You're going to be okay. Brett, uh, delightful to meet you. 110fitness.org, and it's located lo- locally here in the Boston area, but... Um, any thoughts on branching out and opening up franchises and things like that? Yes, we are currently looking at space in the greater Boston area, uh, looking at branching out there. And we're also uh, looking in uh, downtown Manhattan. Ah, excellent. Yeah, so uh, it's, it's, it's in the works. As it should be. Uh, so delightful to meet you and uh, an honor to get to know you and keep up the great work, man. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. It's really, truly an honor. Brett Miller, a force of nature, as mentioned again. Visit 110fitness.org to find out more about his organization. And also check out the book, It's a Beautiful Day to Save Lives, A Medic's Journey to His Destiny by Brett Miller. Appreciation as always to Dan Tebow, our publisher at Fast Twitch Media, to Ken Carberry and the staff at Chart Productions in Boston. And as always to you guys, our beloved audience, a growing family around the world. Visit jordanrich.com for more. Till next time, be well so you can do good. Take care.